Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Who has a Bible with them? I see empty hands. Hold up your Bible. I need proof. There it is. There it is. Well, I tell you, some of you are sneaky. How many of you are a Bible and you're here like this? Now, now do I believe you? How's that working? But here, it's the Bible that's God's word. It's not what men say about the Bible that we're concerned with. It's what the Bible says, right? And we've been working through what book of the Bible? Acts. Acts. An action book. The story of the birth of the church of Jesus Christ that we today are part of. We're continuing that story along with thousands upon thousands of congregations just like this all around the world. And and we're examining the biblical record concerning the beginning of that church. The principles laid down that we should be still following today. And we seek to do that. So before we open it, Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your foresight that you would commit your word to a written form, not just passed along from mind to mind and mouth to mouth, but written down so that we can read it, study it, learn from it, remember it. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word we're looking at today. We pray you'll give us insight into the the workings of God, the workings of the Spirit in the, the earliest days of the church. And may we sense we belong to that. We're part of that. We're carrying on that same tradition. The same Spirit is working in us that worked in them. And therefore, we know we are an extension of what they began. So, Father, bless us as we look into your word now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bible to Acts chapter 6? We will be in a little bit of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. Can you believe that? We're not going to go verse by verse through it, though, because none of you brought lunch, and that would take way too long. But there's a story here that encompasses all of chapter 7 and a good part of chapter 6, and we're going to look at that today. But first, let me ask you, do you remember? Do you remember the problem in the Jerusalem church that Luke reported on last week in the earlier part of chapter 6? Remember the widows in the fellowship. And in those days, a a widow was almost entirely dependent upon the help of others. A widow couldn't go out and get a job. No lady could, really. And if somebody hadn't married her and taken her under his wing, then she was pretty much uh, just in need of someone to help. And within the Church of Jesus Christ, they learned that that's our job. 
We watch out for one another. We take care of one another. And so the widows in the church were taken care of regularly. They had daily food distributions. But we saw last week that the widows in the fellowship who were Grecian, that is, had a Greek background, somehow they were being neglected in the daily food distribution. There had been a, a chink in the system somehow and these ladies were, were being left out or were being underserved. And, and so therefore the believers who were from the Grecian population, they said, hey, that's not right. And so the Grecian believers began to complain to the Jewish believers that is, the believers who had a Jewish background were Hebrew, they begin to complain. And we can imagine people being people, a certain amount of finger pointing, a certain amount of accusations were being made, maybe motives were being questioned. And I said last week, any congregation of believers is just a disaster waiting to happen. Because congregations are full of people. And you all know what people are like. Some of us are them. We think stuff, feel stuff, get annoyed by stuff. It's easy to do, even for saved people. And so last week, we pointed out that if a thing is left to fester, it can become just horrible. And that situation, our widows are being ignored. They're being overlooked. They're being neglected. You guys don't seem to care about us. All of you are Jews, I know. You don't care about us. And all of a sudden, this kind of begin to bubble up. And if a situation like that is left to fester, it can absolutely just split people apart. Pretty soon you could, well, why don't we just split into two churches? We'll have those who have a Jewish background and those who have a Greek background, and we'll be just fine. Well, the apostles got wind of that. The apostles called everybody together and they say, we are one congregation. This is how we need to settle this. And the apostles said, you choose seven men. Seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and have wisdom. And we will put them in charge of this situation and, and let them resolve it, take care of it, and make sure everybody is happy when they get done. Take care of it properly. And they should be able to do that. They're full of the Holy Spirit. And they are men. They're recognized as having wisdom. The best we got. Well, in chapter 6, verse 7, the outcome of the ministry of those seven men is reported. Here's what it says. After the men went to work. It says, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests, that is Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. And all of that happened as a result of the leadership, the apostles, making sure that no kind of human friction was allowed to stop the wonderful work God was doing in their midst. That leads to an observation I would make that would go like this. Wise, spirit-filled leadership will lead a church into fruitful ministry. 
wise, spirit-filled leadership will lead a church into fruitful ministry. And anytime you have people leading a church who have not the Holy Spirit, or kind of just caught up in their own kind of zeal and, uh, and uh, ego, or they're not wise, they really don't make good decisions anywhere in life, but somehow they got in charge, you're, you're just setting yourself up for disaster. Boy, I thank God. I have again and again and again over the 29 years of this church that all of the men who have taken a turn in this church being our church overseers are those kinds of men. We've never had any issue that even had a chance to fester into something nasty. We've structured our church in such a way that we try to avoid as many of those kinds of uh, problems as possible that grow out of fleshly concerns. And that's what they did in the very first century. Chose seven men, filled with the Spirit of God, committed men, who had already exercised wisdom, and the problem was taken care of. Now, as those seven men whose names are listed in Acts chapter 6 were listed, the very first name was Stephen. Stephen. As Luke was writing the story some years later, no doubt he put the most well-known one first. It's like we always start when we talk about the founders of this country, we generally start with George Washington. The one that everybody will recognize the name. And so Stephen was listed. And then as Luke is telling the story of the early church, he then bridges immediately into the story of Stephen. And became a a powerful uh, situation and story. And so the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, Luke is telling us Stephen's story. And that's what we're going to look at today. Stephen's story begins and ends right there. We'll never hear of Stephen again. It's all right there. And out of that story comes what I'm calling today, you see on your outline, Stephen's resume. How many of you have ever worked out a resume for yourself? Were you applying for a job? And the person says, well, have you done anything? Well, your resume tells somebody what you've done. Don't raise your hand. How many of you have ever uh, embellished a resume? (laughs) And I was brilliant at that job. A resume. It's a quick, short summation of who you are, what you've done, and, and, and... Ideally intended to impress the reader so that you might get what you're applying for. They might know that you are the person they're looking for. A resume. This morning we're going to go through a number of points right out of this story that I would list as bullet points on Stephen's resume. And let me say... Take a deep breath here now. I'm saying this, Stephen's resume, would be the intended resume of every single born-again believer. When we get done with our lives, even in the midst of living our Christian life, there should be quite a bit here in Stephen's resume that would be true of us as well. And so let's pay attention and kind of be sensitive and say, you know, uh, 
You know, I know some Christians like that. I want to be like that. Or to even say, you know, praise God, he's put me in situations where that's something like that's on my resume too. And I want to have more of that. So let's go. Here we go. Stephen, on his resume, first thing we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And what a thing to have as the first listed item on your resume. Stephen was full of God's grace and power. Now, most jobs you apply for today, that wouldn't take you very far. Okay, so tell me about yourself. Well, there are folks who say, I'm full of God's grace and power. Okay? Now, what's the good stuff you got? What do you mean by that? But Luke, writing to a group of Christians, writing to other churches that are going to read this and, and are identifying with Stephen, who was one of these seven men that were chosen and satisfied and brought about a great healing in the church in the very earliest days, when they read, Stephen was full of grace and power. Here's what the verse actually says. Now, Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Everybody knew who Stephen was. He was maybe right up there in identification or I, you know, uh, familiarity with the apostles themselves. He was a man who did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So obviously, Stephen's service for the Lord did not begin and end with food distribution. He was a man who was greatly used by the Lord. We don't know how much time is covered by this summary verse. How long a period of time was, was Luke referring to when he just says, now Stephen was this kind of guy? did great wonders, miraculous signs among the people. But no doubt, the whole church was greatly blessed by Stephen's ministry. Great wonders and miraculous signs, it says, characterized his service for Christ. What a, what a statement to have on your resume. Did great things for God. The kind of things that people noticed had come from God. And serve God. We could say, I want to say, every single born-again believer who keeps in step with the Spirit does things that God, and generally the people around, recognize as wonderful. And perhaps even miraculous. Have you ever had a Christian do something for you that when, when the deed was done and the situation was handled, you say, oh man, it's a miracle they showed up. It's a miracle that they understood how to do that and could help me right at that time. It's a miracle that they, she was just able to comfort me and kind of help me just kind of calm down, settle down, and we got through that. It's like, you ever say to somebody, man, you are a godsend. Well, I believe people were saying that to Stephen all the time. Man, you are a godsend. You took me in. You helped me out. You talked me through. You showed me how. It's like a miracle that you're in my life. See, sometimes we think miracles have to be feeding 5,000 people with a couple of fish. 
The Son of God did that. But on a human level, there are some things that, that you can do for one another, and many of you have done for one another. Some of you have done things in my life that I've observed, or even blessing me through them, that I'd say, I mean, that was just from God. That was from God. That word that you just spoke is, is from God. That insight, you know, is from God. You know, faithful service to one who's in need. Sympathetic listening to one who has a troubled heart. Finding ways to help a person through a difficult time. Standing by a person when no one else would. Forgiving a person for wrongs done. Or wounds given. Enduring the pains and the difficulties of life with a spirit of confident trust and a sense of inner peace. These are all evidences that one is, like Stephen, filled with God's grace and power. And more often than not, something wondrous and perhaps even in the eyes of the recipient, miraculous, happens as they are ministered to by such a one. These are all evidences that one is like Stephen, filled with God's grace and power, and more often than not, something wondrous is, is the result. And so Stephen, listed in the scripture here today, he was maybe the first one to be so identified. His resume had a glowing statement right at the top of it, and every one of us, should seek to, to have such a resume in our own lives. Here's the second one. Luke says, Stephen spoke with irrefutable wisdom that was given by the Spirit. Here's how he actually put it in Acts chapter 6, verse 10. The Spirit says, they, that is those who would argue with Stephen, those that Stephen was trying to share the truth with, they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Stephen had a way of declaring God's truth that those who denied God's truth just couldn't really come up with a, with a solid response to. They just could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Oh, my friends... This is not mentioned because Stephen spoke from the point of view of one who had an advanced degree in theology. Stephen, I believe, spoke with the uncomplicated insight given by the Holy Spirit. He spoke words that could not be successfully refuted. A lot of the theological statements just lead to somebody who has a different take on theology, and you can debate those things back and forth. The things that Stephen said were not debatable. They were not opinions of men. They were not something he figured out on his own in the obscure verses and in the scripture that nobody else could figure out, but he did. No, he's just declaring the truth of God given to him by the Spirit of God that applies to a situation that someone is in. You see, he, like Jesus and the apostles themselves, spoke like no ordinary man. That's what they said about Jesus. No man ever spoke like this. Nobody does speak like this. 
This guy's not speaking looking for a fight, an argument, to prove a point. He's speaking in a way that we cannot deny at all what he's saying. And what he's saying just drops like like fresh rain from heaven upon us. It makes sense. It's good. It's filled with love. You see, there, there is nothing, and there is nothing ordinary or obvious about the truths of God. They strike the ear of man like something he's never heard before. They are not susceptible to the high-sounding, loudly announced arguments of men. You see, there's always a ring of truth to somebody who's just speaking the clear truths of God. A ring of truth to what Jesus said. A ring of truth to what the apostles said. A ring of truth, I believe, obviously, to to what Stephen would say in the day-to-day workings of the early church. And his listeners, his listeners could not deny it. And they hated him for it. Now, through the years, the Spirit of God has had thousands upon thousands of Stephens whose simple, straightforward statements have rung true in the hearts and minds of the lost folks around them. Statements that have rescued the minds of believers who have recalled them in times of trouble. Frequently, the rescue begins when a struggling believer says something like this, Ah, man, I know my mother always used to say. And something comes back to mind that absolutely applies to this tricky situation you're in. And you're so grateful that just her simple, old-fashioned, straightforward, sensible truths is, Ah, man, I remember what my mom used to say. I just need to listen to that. Or I had a dear friend who once told me that. And here comes back to mind something that that dear concerned Christian friend told you one time and now you're in a a puzzle and a mix and a confusion and and back to you comes just these words that have the ring of truth upon them. Or might even say, "I I had a pastor once who would say, It seemed like almost every Sunday, that. And some statement comes back to mind that just kind of stabilizes you, clarifies things for you. And you say, and you know, remembering those words just kind of put me right back on the path where I need to be, the path that I've wandered away from. They just put me right back there because when I hear them, I cannot deny the truth of them. I believe Stephen spoke like that. And you and I can too. Stephen's opponents hated him for speaking like that. And they finally trumped up a charge against him. And they brought him before the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was their highest court in their land, to judge him. And at this point, we add an item to Stephen's resume that's really quite intriguing because they hauled Stephen in to appear before this august body of Jewish uh, chief priests and scribes and really the judges and the rulers of the people in this council called the Sanhedrin. They brought him in there to address them. 
and for them to address him. And Luke reports in Acts chapter 6, verse 15, this next item on Stephen's resume. It says, And Stephen possessed the face of an angel. And he just lets that statement sit there. He doesn't explain it. Now I know some of you young ladies out here, when you maybe were even younger than you are today, might have had a young man somewhere along the line say to you or about you, oh, she's got the face of an angel. This isn't what they were referring to with Stephen. <laughs> It says, verse 15, they, that is the council, those who were about to judge him and condemn him, they looked intently at Stephen, this person that they absolutely hated, this troublemaker, this person that they, they couldn't successfully debate with, they couldn't overcome, he had too many brains and wisdom for that, and, and it's like he was saying things that were so doggone true that if they denied them, the people would say, are you idiots? So they hated him, this representative of Jesus Christ. And they finally got him in front of them. And they look at him. And they see something that did not encourage them. They didn't find a scared guy. They didn't find a guy who's willing to cut a deal. If you just let me out of here, I know you have power over me. I know you're the Jew you have Jewish authority. I know you're the ones that condemned Jesus in the first place and wound up getting him crucified. You put pressure on the Roman government even to get Jesus crucified. I know you guys are dangerous. I know you have power. You know, if you just kind of, let, let's just let bygones be bygones. Let me be out of here. That's a whole different kind of face, isn't it? They looked at him and they didn't see any of that. He wasn't intimidated by their fancy robes and their authority and he's sitting there all by himself. It was like they were looking at the face of an angel. And let me just say, from what we generally know about angels in the scripture, that was not a comforting sight to them. Looking at Stephen... First off, and we can only make a couple of points here, first off, they were looking and knew they were looking at someone superior to them. Here's what David wrote in Psalm 8, talking about God creating man and crowned him with glory and honor. He says, he made man a little lower than the angels. So who's superior, man or angels? Okay, man's a little lower. Maybe just a little lower, but lower's lower, right? Angels are superior beings to human beings in a number of ways. Number one, angels are celestial beings. Angels, citizens of heaven itself. They are servants of the Most High God himself face to face. Human beings were generally awestruck and frightened whenever they encountered an angel in this world. Angels 
biblically speaking, were generally sent on incredibly important missions. Frequently, they were sent by God on missions of judgment. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Missions of judgment on behalf of a holy God who had finally reached the end of his patience. I'm sure there was more than one of those Jewish judges who thought, looking at Stephen's face, what have we done? What have we done? Do we really want to mess with this man? They soon found out. Now, as he sat there, and people looked at him and took in what they were seeing, the prosecuting attorneys, as it were, made their case. Quietly stood there, took the, uh, their, their questioning, their accusations, took their abuse as they hit him and, and whipped him and all these things, and ultimately, he laid down his life on the cross. Stephen was under no such biblical parameters. Stephen was operating under no such guidelines. The Savior had come and had suffered and had died, and these men were the spokesmen of the nation. They were sitting in the seat of their fathers. They were the haughty current leaders of that rebellious nation. It was time for them to hear exactly what the Spirit was giving him to say. And hear it they did. But receive it they did not. Luke tells us that when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And so in reporting that moment of rejection and violence and impending death, Luke then makes this additional resume entry. Stephen, he tells us, saw the Lord high and lifted up. Acts 7, 55, 56. Stephen looked up to heaven. He's outside and he looks up and he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. I see him. The one you killed. The one you put away. The one you denied. The one that you you castigate even to this day. I see him standing at the right hand of God. Stephen might be the only man who ever lived who actually saw that sight. A resume that no one else has. Someday we'll see Jesus. And when we see him, we'll be like him, the scripture says. But Stephen saw him with his own eyes. Not a vision, but the real thing. Tell you, what a blessing. What a testimony. Stephen granted a glimpse into heaven itself, and he saw the Lord Jesus waiting for him. His eternal joy was only a few painful moments away. Sight overcame any fear he might have felt. Doubt certainly had no chance to creep in. 
There's the Lord right there. Oh, let me say to you this morning, no matter what trouble you might be in, no matter how painful the blows of life have become, cast your gaze heavenward. Your Savior, your Heavenly Father, await you there, even while the Spirit they have sent comforts and strengthens you while you are here. And then, strengthened by that look, Stephen saw his murderers as the fallen, ignorant men that they were, and his words allowed Luke and us to add this last little bit to his resume. Here's the last statement. Stephen, with some of his last breaths, exhibited the character of Jesus himself. Acts 7, 59, 60. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That was Jesus' attitude on the cross as he was coming to the very end of his life. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he released his spirit from his own body. Stephen couldn't do that, but he knew it was coming. And he just said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Oh, I hope when I come to the point of death, I would hope for every one of us when we actually come to the point of death, that God grants us a last little bit of consciousness that we can know what's going on. And we say, oh, Father, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and know that you died, you passed out of this life with the fullest of confidence that any human being could ever have. If the Lord ever even enables us to, as it were, heaven kind of catch open a little bit and we even see a glimpse of what awaits us, how glorious would that be? But perhaps even more impressive to God is when it's solely by faith we say, I know, I know. Lord, receive my spirit. I'm on my way. And then Stephen says, also parroting what the Lord Jesus himself had said on Calvary, Father, do not hold this sin against them. That's a double-sided statement. On one hand, if you're a Jewish ruler with stones in your hands, stoning to death a blasphemer, and you think you're doing God a great service by ending this man's life, you hear this man say, in his opinion, you're committing sin. You're committing sin. And he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Boy, that had to give some of them pause. What are we doing? Is this right? Or are we in fact sinning a great sin, murdering an innocent man, condemning one who truly is in touch with with God himself? Father, though, do not hold this sin against them. And so really, when we think about it, Isn't that the number one reason the Holy Spirit has been sent to us? 
to transform us little by little into the very likeness of Jesus. Becoming like him. So even Stephen here, in the moment of his death, was taking Jesus as his example, following in his footsteps, holding no animosity towards those who were even taking his life, and saying, Father, I understand how blind they are. Father, I understand how enraged they are, how blinded by anger, by ignorance they are. Father, don't hold this against them. And maybe that's a way of saying, Father, don't let this be an unpardonable sin. Don't, don't let this be something that you could never forgive them for. Don't hold this against them. But if they, if they turn to you, receive them. Receive them. Even though they're doing this horrible thing to me. Well, now, having reviewed this whole account of Stephen's uh, ministry and life in just a, a fast way, here's our final thought. Now, I want you to think about this. I've thought about it. Anyone who dies with their faith intact, and we talk about that all the time. If there's ever anybody who's going to say, yeah, Pastor Mark, he talked about that all the time. The thing I talk all the time, you hear that phrase again and again, to come to the end of our life with our faith intact, strong, us feeling closer to the Lord than we've been at any other time in our life. And hopefully having that, just that last moment of consciousness where before we leave this world, we can say, it's happening. It's happening. Oh, God, receive me. Receive my spirit. Dying with your faith intact, as we have seen so many do over the last almost 30 years in this church, is an incredible thing. It's a very unhuman thing. Humans die, they fear death. Humans die desperately holding on to the last shred of life they can, but, but followers of Jesus can die with an anticipation of everything God has promised. And they can die with other people watching them saying, oh man, I wish I knew the Lord that way. What I'm saying here, anyone who dies with their faith intact is a descendant of Stephen. And his resume becomes ours if even, if only the last entrance on it he died looking unto Jesus he died confident in what God had given to him eternal life and then if we have that I can guarantee you these other items on the resume we're, we're going to discover at the end of our life they're all there too they're all there too because that's what the spirit produces in those who simply trust Christ, surrender all to him, and walk with the Spirit through their life. I trust this week will be a week that, that just overwhelms you with how Christ, through his Holy Spirit, is changing you, forming you, strengthening you, enabling you. And I pray by God's grace that there'll be people around you this week that say, come on, tell me, what gives? 
How do you handle this like you do? How do you talk that way? How can you just let people talk to you like that and, you know, and, and, and not have to fight back? How do you do this? And you say, oh, it's not me. But I've received from God life in Jesus Christ. And along with that life has come the presence of the Holy Spirit. And every morning I just ask him to control me and to guide me. And more days than not, it works out that way. Oh, God bless you. May this be a, a great, great week for you. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the way the years can just be uh, collapse into just a few moments. All that happened to Stephen was nearly 2,000 years ago, and, and yet he was a man like we are men. He was a believer in Jesus, like so many of us here are believers in Jesus. He found the strength of the Spirit to, to take him through the most arduous of circumstances, and, and he trusted his entire self to you. Father, he could have lived last week as far as the connection we have, the similarity between those early believers and those who would seek to follow Christ today. So Father, bless this congregation. Let your word just take root in our hearts. Let the, the story of a great man of faith like Stephen just be an inspiration to us that we might kind of follow him even the way that he was following in the footsteps of Jesus himself. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.